I'm Mark Kane with the World Economic Forum. And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello, Miriam. Hi, Mark. Great to see you. Good to see you too. I'm so excited to have this conversation today with Sarah Drinkwater from the Omidyar Network. I am too. She is doing so much of the work that uh, we talk about that that is so important to us with responsible tech and uh, defining the industry in really important ways. Uh, what are you looking forward to discussing today? Well, I know that Sarah has supported uh, and been an advocate for some really interesting work around uh, tech workers and helping them think through the ethical implications of the work that they do. So I'm excited to hear her talk about that and also just to hear a bit more about her journey, because I know that she has been in the tech sector herself uh, and has now uh, become something of a uh, advocate and uh, sometime critic of the tech sector. And so I'm curious how that um how that journey has has evolved and, and and where she's at with it today. Same here. Let's jump in. Okay. Hello and welcome to this episode of In AI We Trust, where we get to speak with Sarah Drinkwater. Sarah is the director of the Responsible Technology Team for the Imidyar Network. In that role, Sarah helps technologists prevent, mitigate, and correct societal downsides of technology and maximize positive impact. Prior to the Imidyar Network, Sarah was the head of the Campus London, Google's first physical startup hub offering innovative education programs, a work and event space, and access to vibrant startup community. Campus London was a pilot that has since scaled to six locations around the world. At Google, Sarah also built and led the global Google Maps community team. Sarah previously worked in community and content roles for early stage startups in Europe and has advised brands on their social strategy after having served as a journalist, which we look forward to hearing more about. So Sarah, to start, uh, a topic of great mutual interest to Mark, to me, to many of our listeners, uh, responsible AI, somewhat of a buzzword, but also arguably one of the most important things we can all be building for to ensure a just and efficient, effective society. So could we level step set and, and set, tell us uh, what is it that you all are aspiring to in responsible tech and how are you going about achieving it? Um, thank you, Miriam. What a wonderful introduction. So I guess, I guess we think about responsible technology as technology that is equitable as well as innovative. And the reason why I'm kind of mincing my words there a bit and just offering those two definitions is there is no core kind of shared definition yet of what this looks like to all of us. I think we believe that technology should live up to its original promise, should be equitable, sustainable, innovative, you know, all, all these things that I think we, you know, we rely upon the tech we use for kind of convenience and connection, but there is so much that's missing. Um, and particularly with the focus on AI, AI has become this phrase that's a, a grab bag of many things under the mantle, it's almost like a marketing term these days, but I do think that this push towards really examining the data sets that are used, this push towards thinking about bias, this push towards regulation, which is incredibly exciting. You know, I've worked in tech for 15 years and the threat of regulation has always been on the horizon and finally it's here. Um, you know, for me, it's about helping tech live up to its original promise and help us do and be more, where we're centering not the product that we're using, but the people, us who are using it. That's a great way to, to put it. And I, I look back and I, I, I remember, uh, I'm old enough to remember the days when tech was going to liberate all of us and connect all of us and you know Twitter and the Arab Spring and all of that. Um, 
I am curious sort of what happened, how did we get to where we are and, um, and, and, and yeah, how might we get to a better place? I mean, honestly, I think I could write a PhD thesis on this topic at this point, although I'm sure far smarter people have done so. Yeah, I think, um, you know, for me, I grew up with a self-taught developer for a dad whose who's big push in the 80s was he changed his life through kind of taking radios apart, learning to code and moving into the field professionally. And so even before the World Wide Web came about, I, I had this very strong domestic notion that technology was liberatory. Um, and I think there was a very strong push if you read Fred Turner has an amazing book called From Counterculture to Cyberculture. It looks at the kind of um, cynical rebranding that happened that took an industry that had been deeply associated with the military and deeply associated with kind of big business and rebranded it as counterculture when personal computing came out. So, you know, I think I think we've always slightly been marketed to, and that's a hard thing to understand, particularly for me as a tech worker. But if I look at what's gone wrong, and I think you mentioned the Arab Spring is really interesting to me because that was probably the second or third year that I worked in technology full-time and I worked in social media for a bit and I met my husband on Twitter in about this era when there weren't many of us on Twitter and it still felt incredibly exciting and liberatory coming back to that word. Um, I think if you look at the last 10 years, what has happened to tech is what's happened to every big business. The money became too compelling. Um, the mission statements became more divorced from what was happening under the hood. You know, I think Twitter is a, is a really interesting case study because you know, you can't lay claim for the Arab Spring and not understand that Gamergate is also your fault. You know, platforms are not neutral. They are the filter for the person who's using them. And I think particularly with Twitter, you look at their content choices in the last six months and they're finally making some really smart, hard choices. And part of the reason Twitter is doing that is because last year an activist investor, only in tech could the word activist have the opposite meaning from how you and I might think about it. An, op uh, an activist investor came in and said they would push Jack Dorsey out unless Twitter began innovating on its product. That's why we're seeing things like Brandwatch, which is kind of a, um, a crowdsourced tool to create, to sort of curate harm. That's why we're seeing amazing people like Roman Chowdhury joining as the head of ethical AI. You know, I think if we look at the last 10 years and the dominance of certain companies, I think so much of it goes back to capitalism. And I hate invoking that word in an argument because it's like, where do you go from there? It's the system that we live in. But that's part of the reason why at Emidio Network, the twin themes that we have, it's Responsible Tech, which I co-lead, and Reimagining Capitalism, because we think these problems are so interconnected with each other. Um, if I look at so much of the tech that I'm excited by right now, so much of it is founded on cooperative principles or mutualistic principles. It's working at very small scale. I think what happens when you have a series of very dominating companies uh, making so much money you know, all the quarterly results just came out and every single fan company has hugely jumped in the last year because we're more reliant upon them than ever. You know, Amazon hiring 400,000 delivery drivers in the US alone. What happens is these companies flatten out how we think about tech, but tech is so much more diverse and interesting than just fan. And that's what I'm excited about. Is when I think about responsible tech, part of that's about curbing the power of the largest companies. And that's what my policy colleague does. But the other half of my team is focused on the new is focused on how do we build up new kinds of power that is far more tied to the original promise of tech in the first place. Well, I love where this conversation is going because uh, this is often a, a um, 
somewhat ominous conversation. As we know, when we're talking about responsible tech, we're starting with uh, what could go wrong, what has gone wrong, and we very much need to be focused on that and spreading the word. But I think it's equally important to think about AI for good and uh, what liberating, to use the theme uh, of the, the smaller startups, the different players, what keeping innovation in our culture can do to ensure that AI is what we dream it to be, that it is both effective and inclusive. And would love to hear your thoughts on what's some of the tech you're excited about right now. Yeah, and I, I love this. You know, to me, it's so important that we balance both, right? We're not going to get the tech we want just by pushing back. I think the the conversation around regulation and the conversation around accountability is critically important. Those are, those are parts of a functioning system. And I think that system has got a bit out of balance in the last couple of years or decades, I should say. But, um, you know, I think there are good examples of great technology in many kinds of company. It's not just about the small startups, although increasingly I'm a bit more excited by them. I think partly because um, having spent the last couple of years thinking about ethical owners in big tech, after the kind of Google AI fallout in December, it was just a, it was a real moment for us in realizing this network of ethical owners in big tech we built, this group felt so kind of captured by their roles. They were so sort of um, privy to kind of shifting by and it helped us kind of reassess our priorities and kind of think, okay, actually there's a lot more work to be done with the very sort of small emergent new kinds of startups. But I guess when I think about technologies that are, really exciting. I think about companies like Honeycomb, which Liz Fong Jones is at, you know, a hyper-technical startup that is founded on just very different principles. And the reason that Honeycomb sprang to mind is Liz shared on Twitter after the kind of base camp Farago of the last week, how Honeycomb thinks about setting guidelines for their employees about how they talk about tough topics of work. Um, I think it's, if we're going back to base camp, you know, the memo they brought out in the last week, which led to half of their company leaving, in four days, which is an incredible timeline if you think about it. Um, and the Basecamp memo basically said no more social and political conversations at work. Um, and I think the moment that we're in, not understanding that the companies that we launch are themselves carrying certain social and political assumptions is naive at best. And I think with Honeycomb, what I like so much about their rules of the road is it set a tone of trust, it set a tone of equality, but it also said, you know, just because we're saying it's permitted to discuss X, Y, Z, does not mean we're not invoking any First Amendment stuff here, right? Just because you, you say something, it doesn't mean we don't reserve the right to say that's not appropriate. And I think that's part of the negotiation that we as individuals and leaders are making right now. Um, how should we be in this moment where, you know, we've lived through, you know, depending on where you live in the world, we're at a certain point of our way through an incredible crisis that's given us this chance to kind of reset. Um, and one thing I'm observing with, my team, but also with so many friends, is there is this incredible reckoning happening, particularly in tech around purpose and meaning and what isn't isn't okay in the context of work. And I think some leaders perhaps haven't understood that yet. So when I think about tech that I'm most excited by, it's not just about the product, it's really about the culture that the, the team has created between them. And with Basecamp, that was a, a company culture that I've been following for a long time. So that was kind of a massive shift in my thinking of like, okay, I always thought these, these were leaders. And now I see that actually they're not meeting the moment that we're in right now. That's a great point. I think that that what is 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 asked of companies and of and of employees um, has changed, and 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 as it you know should have, um, given how much has changed around us, uh, you know, in terms of the moment that we're in, with the pandemic, with the kind of uh, racial and systemic sort of racism yeah. uh, reckoning that's happening, particularly in the U.S. And on that. 
just looking at it from sort of one level down, you've you, you've said that you are at Omidyar um, going to invest in the rise of responsible tech workers. So you know, yes. le- you know, one level down from the company structure and the policies there, the actual yeah. individual level of, of 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 engineers and and product managers and so on. Curious what that looks like and kind of what you would suggest. Um, yeah you know, as a, as a kind of crash course, let's say, for, uh, for a, a tech worker who wants to become a responsible tech worker? Well, I think it's, I think that we came to the thesis in a couple of ways. When I joined Imager Network in 2018, you know, I had quite an old-fashioned view of power. I'd come straight from Google, where I'd had a job that was very cross-functional. I was working with entrepreneurs, but I built this network inside the company over a long course of time where, um, you know, I left in the middle of the Maven organizing effort, which changed my view of the company in many ways. And something that's been kind of interesting to us at Amidia Network is when I first joined, we were speaking to leaders. You know, we were speaking to the, the kind of the Jack Dorsey level people because our theory was if we change the minds of five people, perhaps the companies themselves will tweak products, et cetera. And I think we realized in time that that was just insufficient. That was a really old fashioned view of how influence works. You know, looking at the scale of these companies now, you know, Fang alone, if you exclude Amazon warehouse workers, they almost have a million workers in the US. These are big workforces. And you know these are workers that are well-paid in lots of ways. And many of them have come into their industry and their job with an expectation of, of ability to have meaning in their work. And I think meaningful work is something that is incredibly important, certainly for, to the younger generation. Um, I think we realized that when you think about responsible AI, so much work is done at the principal level. People put up principles the whole time. And that's good. That's a contribution to the conversation. But what I'm really interested in is what happens to the level below that, um, because things always break in the real world. And the people that are doing the work are the workers. They're the product managers, the engineers, the designers. These are the people that are most likely to be speaking to the user in the way that I was when I was at Google on the Maps team. I was the person who had some kind of open dialogue with the consumer a lot of the time. And so I guess a couple of examples of, of investees that we have that are working to serve this group. You know, one is TSPA, Trust and Safety Professional Association. Um, And they're really the first member body for people who work in trust and safety. And trust and safety is one of those insider terms that if you work in a big tech company, you kind of know. Um, What that means is everything from content moderation to financial fraud to user health. So this community group is everybody from VPs of policy down to contract content moderators who get treated quite badly by their employers. So this organization is really working to build the field of these people. You know, these folks often are um, underpaid, undervalued, very often diverse. And what TSPA is working to do is kind of really create common, you know, common understanding across the industry of what good looks like, which I think in an era where 230 is constantly on the table, you know, when we're having conversations about 230, section 230, sorry, um, so often the person coming in to give evidence is a very remote kind of a public policy or government affairs person for a large company, you never, you know, you look at the Facebook oversight board too, there is not one person on that board who's done moderation. And it, fundamentally, I think we need to build solutions that are informed by those that are doing the work day in, day out. So that's just a core belief that we have. It's so interesting as you're talking about the responsible tech worker, it's like you're empowering the electorate uh, to vote with their their job and their employment status. Um, and and it, it's almost as if a new world order is emerging. Yeah. 
I hope so. I mean, I think, okay, I think um, this is going to sound very highfalutin, so bear with me, but it's a little bit like how we think about on the reimagining capitalism team, you know, the way that we organize society right now is not working for so many people, right? It's working for an incredibly small number of people on top who look the same as that those people have always looked for the most part. And I think within tech, the, the opportunity that we see is that so many of these companies were founded with a very strong social mission. Um, you know, when I first joined Google in 2010, nearly everyone I met was there because they had this very strong belief in making information accessible to all. Um, and for these large companies, if you think about what is a risk to like a Facebook or a Google, they're getting hammered in the press every single day. Um, that is useful. I think it's a very useful tailwind for our work. Regulatory risk is coming, but it will take time because democracy naturally is slower than software for lots of very good reasons. You know, I think talent risk is a really important lever. You know, looking at the I keep coming back to Basecamp just because this is a company that I've followed for so long, but to have 60 employees and an amazing reputation as leaders in remote work, you know, they took Apple to court uh, in the case of um, Apple kind of being a, a sort of gatekeeper for small app developers. In a week, they released a blog post and lost half their staff. And to me, this is, so, I can't wait to read the Harvard Business School case study of it or whatever, but like, you know, replacing an engineer, like having hired teams of engineers and tech workers it's expensive, it takes time. You know, I think we're definitely seeing lines being drawn with certain workers not wanting to work for certain companies. And, you know, I believe that in every single company in the world, even the ones that we might find most challenging, there are great people. But at the same time, I think what we're trying to do is kind of build that muscle to help workers kind of speak up um, and not just kind of push back, but also to build companies in different ways. You know, for me, particularly having a very strong background in the startup scene, you know, startups in London in the late noughties is the Silicon Valley way. And I've seen that in real time really shift. I've seen all these incredible hubs launch all over the world, um, from South Korea to Pakistan to Buenos Aires to Nairobi. And they all have a different local flavor that I think is really beautiful. And I just hate the idea of, of flattening out. I think what happens with dominant companies in any era is they call your imagination. You know, if you look at the Victorian era and railroads, exactly the same thing happened, you know, at the same time as a person living in a small town got the ability to travel and to have their horizons opened. They were also captured by a certain company making money out of them and there were no other options. So I think for us as citizens, as consumers, as people who work in this space, I do think about this work as being liberatory. I do think about this work as being, you know, tech workers um, having the incredible luxury of having purposeful work. You know, let's not, let's, let's be clear. These are people that are incredibly fortunate and luxury and in a privileged position, but that's why they have a duty of care to use that privilege to help others get free. Yeah. I think, um, uh, you know, that's, that's, it's such a live conversation right now. And it's so interesting because it has changed a lot, but I think that there's, there's a lot of, um, there's still a lot of opportunity for the industry to, to, you know, be, be what, but it can be, which which is which is you know something that that, that uplifts all. So I want to shift gears a little bit because I want to pick up on something that you, you you flagged in that comment, which is your experience working with startups and in startups. And um, one thing that I think we see is that startups, uh, rightly, are uh, very scrappy and they're very focused on um, getting their product out the door and they have, you know, funders breathing down their neck and so on. They may not necessarily have the same bandwidth and capacity to sort of uh, think thoughtfully and deliberately about things like responsible tech and 
um, you know, how to be ethical and so on. It's not to say that they shouldn't. It's just that the realities of their situation uh, give them a little bit less latitude to do it. And so I just wanted to get your um, thoughts on, on, on kind of, you know, how can ethics, responsible use, responsible development be yeah. encouraged and inculcated and developed within the startup community? And, and, and kind of what are the challenges there and, and, and what are some ways that startups can address them? Oh, I love that question. Yeah, I think um, I think you hit upon something very important um, that obviously for a very small company, your number one goal is the company not dying tomorrow. That's the number one thing, like it just is. Um, and, and at the same time, there's lots of dominant norms in startup land about how you work. You know, you do launch a paper wireframe tomorrow. You know, you do like move fast, break things. I know it's a bit archaic as a, as a phrase these days, but I do... You know, I also angel invest outside of my outside of my sort of day job. And, you know, I've tended to focus on founders that naturally have a bent towards the area that I work in just because we attract each other. It's like a magnet. But I do think um, the number one thing that I've seen be useful, and I'm going to give a plug for something else I funded here. Um, we funded Ethical Explorer last year, and it's basically a toolkit to help product managers, engineers and their collaborators think through these hard topics. Totally free toolkit, ethicalexplorer.org. And the goal behind it is we kept hearing from early stage teams. Um, we don't know how to talk about these topics. We haven't got a PhD. Um, if we have access to one data set, how do we even think about debiasing it? How do we even think about what bias looks like in this context for a team of three white women? That's complicated. And so this toolkit is basically a set of cards. It's very simple. And it has eight topics in it, um, ranging from bias and AI to outsized power, to surveillance, to data control, all the things that I think, um, and there's a blank card for what particular harm your company might have that, that we haven't thought of yet. Um, and the goal is, first of all, to kind of find a way into a conversation about this topic, um, to understand, you know, really it was to help small teams have an open talk about what they are and are not okay with, and then to understand where is our product now and where would you like it to be? And interestingly, it's been downloaded thousands and thousands and thousands of times. And many of the downloaders are in big tech, but an awful lot are entrepreneurs. And I think part of the reason for that is if you're in big tech, you have these in-house teams, you have consultants. I would argue that these teams are still very constrained, but I think for, for early stage teams, I think about this as being the way that you attract the best talent, how you build trust with your customer base. I mean, I do think the investment piece is worth digging into more because I would argue that Investors know they should care about it, but they're not seeing the same level of market returns. And ultimately, that's the number one thing they care about is money. Whereas I think founders, in some ways, have more freedom depending on, you know, their personal comfort levels, their level of privilege, which can't be ignored in this conversation. Um, but for me, the most important things startups should do is talk about this stuff, because choices that you make in the first year of a company are very consequential. Um, you know, if you raise your first round and every single investor is a white man, you know, very hard to course correct that later. Um, in the same way, if you put a product on the market, you know, I worked on multiple products. I have worked on multiple products that after launch, we found something very badly wrong with them. And nobody wants to live through that. That feels terrible. You know, you have to pull the entire thing. Um, and that's comparatively okay if you're a company with the scale of resources as Google, but even their reputation is very bad. But if you're a tiny company, Building some sense of trust right now, you know, the average person has six apps on their phone. You've got to work even harder to earn that trust, even harder to earn that love. So I would think about this work as competitive advantage personally. Absolutely. And this is uh, 
music to our ears and our hearts uh, because it relates to so much of what we're doing. For instance, uh, we're about to launch program for senior executives and to learn responsible AI governance. And Mark is very involved in this with, with Equal AI and with me in particular. And uh, when we talk about it with companies, their first reaction is, oh, that's for the big thing AI companies. Uh, and we have place. to really reorient people that, yes, we want them participating in the conversation, but they have ethical models in place. And you can argue whether or not it's working, but they're thinking about responsible AI governance. It's every other company whose AI is used in a pivotal way that can create either opportunity or harm without their knowing it. And it's particularly the startups whose technology they're gonna be acquiring and building into their systems that I don't know how we're gonna unpack a few years from now when we find the harms. And so the fact that you're focused on this work is exhilarating and I um, I love it. And I'm just so sorry that uh, we're, almost at time and, and need to wrap. So hopefully we can continue this. But before we let you go, one question we like to ask each of our guests is breaking it down just into three simple pieces. What is the rose, the bud, and the thorn in AI for you? What are you excited about, worried about? What's your thorn? And what are you excited about on the horizon? I mean, I think the rose would have to be the new set of frameworks that have come out in the US and the Europe and the EU. I think it would be crazy for me to say anything else. You know, I think um, they're imperfect, but at the same time, it's something on the page. And I think there's been a lot of thought and care gone into both frameworks. I think now we kind of wait and see what's enforceable. But to me, we've been talking about regulation in this space for so long. So to see these ambitious blueprints come out, to me, is very exciting. Um, I think a bud would be that there is huge appetite in working in this space. Um, you know, when you were just talking about senior execs and companies that you work with, I was thinking about how something I loved when I first joined Google, I was in engineering and I'm not an engineer. I've got two arts degrees, which is hilarious. But something I loved about the engineers that I actually got from my dad is they were constant learners. And I'm guessing the same with a lot of the ML kind of researchers, the academics, they're always learning. And the way that I think about this field is any good technologist wants to keep learning, wants to keep inspired. So for me, it's a real bud that I see so many people who kind of want to come into this space, think of it as an exciting long-term career. Um, and I think the more people that we have in this space from very diverse backgrounds, the more kind of rich ideas that we get as a group together. I guess a thorn, I mean, you know, it's uh, it remains to be seen what the Facebook Oversight Board will announce on Wednesday with Trump. But I do... I at once applaud the experimentation with governance and I worry about having a group of um, sort of academics and lawyers making such consequential choices. I think it's great that Facebook is trying this out, but at the same time, I think we have to, it's almost a failure of government that this is happening within the company, if that makes sense. So that's just, you know, it remains to be seen. I, I have mixed feelings on the Facebook oversight board as a whole. Fair point. Well, it sounds like that is a tee up to what will hopefully be a follow on conversation when we can see what your reaction is to how these events transpire. Sarah, we are so grateful you took time to join us today. We're so enthusiastic about the work that you're doing and you. we look forward to following your progress and hopefully talking again. Thank you very much. Well, Mark, I think it's fair to say that talking with Sarah was as useful and interesting as we thought it would be. Absolutely. And I, I also found it personally to be inspiring. I, I thought that Sarah had a 
very thoughtful view on kind of where the tech sector has come from, where it is today, what challenges we're facing, as we've talked about with many of our guests in terms of ethics and governance and responsible use, but also what opportunities there are to, to, to you know, build a better technology sector and have a better um, society with ethical AI and ethical and responsible technology. So I was inspired. Anything jump out to you in that discussion? Well, I agree. I, I feel uplifted because uh, anybody who has spent time in tech companies and evaluating the potential harms of the tech that they're releasing and who can come out saying they have, uh, they have good hopes that we are going to come out net positive on the other side of this, uh, that she's working with startups and so many other companies that are innovative, that are inclusive. And I love that she agrees with our general philosophy and to hear it from her that, that this is a competitive advantage, that companies who have top of mind uh, that their AI has been tested for bias, that it is inclusive, will be a market advantage. And uh, I, it's very reassuring to hear her, her thoughts on that. Yeah, I, I really hope that that is that is that is the direction that things go, and if so, I think that that will be a great example of um, the public interest and the public conversation and public trust really helping to um, shape a better a better future for for industry. And we've seen that in some other uh, sectors where you know, public opinion and uh, regulation and, um, and 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 employee um, uh, opinion have have kind of conspired in a positive way to um, shape better outcomes. And uh, I just, I love that vision for, for tech because, you know, it, it, it's a way of not um, throwing the baby out with the bathwater, um, but rather saying, okay, what's good about these technologies? What is bad about them? And how do we maximize the good that we get while minimizing the bad? So I, I think it was a great conversation and I hope that we can bring her back again and hear more of her views on the oversight board and, and much else. Absolutely. Another great episode, and I'll look forward to our next episode. All right. See you soon, Miriam. You have just listened to In AI We Trust, hosted by Miriam Vogel from Equal AI and me, Mark Kane from the World Economic Forum. Subscribe to or download our podcast at Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Play. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. And to learn more or get involved, please visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org.